Well, good morning. Good morning. It's uh, great to be here with you today, and uh, it was definitely uh, nice to be able to drive down last night and stay with Jay and Michelle in the big storm. And Corey stayed in Doketown with his parents, and uh, we were talking uh, before I left Doketown, and I said, I don't even feel right uh, delivering the first sermon from his new pulpit. And I said, I said, if you want, we can actually just go put it over to the side, and we can bring it up next week. And he said, <laughs> he said, <laughs> he said go ahead. But then the favor kind of got returned, because he texted me this morning, and uh, one of my Bibles that was in the Sunday school classroom in Doketown, uh, he said, thanks for the lend. So... I got to swear. <laughs> but with that being said, uh, it is a privilege and a pleasure to be here. I think the last time I was here, uh, the carpet wasn't even down yet. And it's just so exciting to see what the Lord has done and that the church now has a facility of your own. And it really just enables us to gather together, grow in the Lord, serve the community. And it's just so uh, amazing to see how kind God is. But if you uh, brought your Bible with you this morning... I want to invite you to turn to the book of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah and chapter 6. And I want to start by asking a very important question because this passage really confronts us with one of the greatest realities that we can understand about who God is. And the reason why I want to ask this question, and I'll ask it, is when you think about God, what is the first thought? That comes into your mind. When you think about God, what is the first thought that comes to your mind? And as we reflect on that question, it's an important question to ask because what we think about God says a lot about who we believe Him to be, but it also says a lot about how we view the Christian life and Christian character. And it's so easy when that question is asked for people to think of so many different things about God that are true. For example, God is love, and we know that He is. The Bible tells us He is. But we think that God is merciful, that God is forgiving, that God is all-powerful, that God is everywhere present. And all of those things about God are absolutely true. But there is one truth about God that holds all of those truths together. And that truth is this, that God is holy. And that's the title of this message this morning, that God is holy. And when I asked that question of what you think about God, did that answer come into your mind that God primarily is holy? And sometimes we think correctly about God in this way, but there's other times that our mind gets distracted and we don't always automatically think that about who God is. For example, there are so many voices and so many things in our world to distract us and to cause us to really not see God for who He is all the time. You don't have to look very far into our culture to know that that's the case. And that's why this morning, maybe if you didn't think that God was holy right from the outset, this is a perfect opportunity to renew your mind and to recalibrate your thinking in a world that would say so many opposing things about who God is. One thing that I was made well aware of when I hit the workforce and the secular world is that most people don't think a whole lot about God. There's this mentality or this idea that God in and of himself, he's just a figment of people's imagination. That God is the big guy in the sky, so to speak. That God is an excuse that's used by religion to extort people for money. Like These are ideas that people have about who God is. And if our guard goes down, if we're not defining what we think about God from the Word, 
and we're not renewing our mind, it's so easy to be distracted and not view God as He really is. So with like that being said this morning, that's really where I want us to point our attention. That we need to know who God is because in turn, if we know who God is, we know who we are, and then also we know how we ought to live our life in this present age and in this present world. So before we read Isaiah chapter 6, would you pray with me? And then we'll look at God's word together. Father, this morning I want to thank you for your goodness and your grace towards us. And I thank you that you have explained to us so clearly in your word who you are. You are the greatest being of this entire universe. And you have delighted to reveal yourself to us. And Lord, we also know that it is because of this that it is our job, it's our response to serve you and to love you and to glorify you. And I just think of that verse in Psalm 115 that says, Not unto us, not unto us, but to your name be glory and honor forever and ever. And I pray that this morning that would be the case, that you would get glory for your name, that your people would grow in a knowledge of who you are and also in a, in a service towards your kingdom. But also this morning, if there's somebody here who is outside of Christ, somebody who is yet to believe that they would encounter the living God and that they would surrender all to Christ because he is absolutely worthy of all worship. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Starting in verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the fountains and the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke, and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the sorry, that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to the people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of, the, of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn to be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until the cities lie waste without inhabitants, and houses without people, and the land is desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like Terebinth and Orinoch, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Now, this passage breaks into five sections for us, and I'll give them to you from the outset, 
And then we're going to move through it to really see um, who God is and then how it also applies to us. So the first section is the is a glimpse of God, a glimpse of God from verses one through three. Secondly, we see a glimpse of man. In other words, who we are in comparison to who God is. Then the third section is a guilt to be cleansed. Number four, a grace to live. And then lastly, a gospel to proclaim. And with that in mind, let's start in our first section with a glimpse of God. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, brings us to probably one of the more obscure passages in the Bible. It really does. Because Isaiah chapter 6 is a vision that's given to Isaiah the prophet in the land. And in this vision, we need to understand something. Back in the Old Testament period, especially with the prophets, visions were a way that God often communicated His truth. This is before we had the scriptures. And not only that, um, this is how God would honestly reveal His truth. So we need to look at a vision and understand that this is authoritative, that God is actually speaking His truth to Isaiah to relay to the people. And when He gives him this vision... It's striking because when we think about the political scene of the day, this vision kind of addresses a problem. And I'm not sure how much history you know about Isaiah 6 and about the land at this point, but there is political turmoil. There's unrest among the people. We know from verse 1 that it's Uzziah has died. Their king that the people of Israel absolutely loved has passed away. And this is unsettling. This is um, fearful for them. Because especially in the southern kingdom, they would have seen Uzziah as a highly regarded king. He brought so much prosperity to the land. He honored God. He was a godly king. But then something happened to Uzziah, didn't it? You might know this story. Uzziah ended up getting distracted. He ended up taking his eyes off of what he was supposed to do as a king. And he tried to usurp, sorry, usurp the authority of the high priest. And he went into the Holy of Holies to get his own sacrifice. And it says that God struck him with leprosy. After God struck him with leprosy, he goes, he lives secluded in his own kingdom. And his son Jotham begins to reign at the same time as him. Well, Jotham and Uzziah die right around the same age. And the next king who's supposed to take over is a king by the name of Ahaz. And if you've ever read anything about Ahaz in Kings or Chronicles... He is not a godly king. He is someone who would use the kingdom to feed his lust. Someone who would use the kingdom to feed his love of idolatry. Someone who would use his power and his wealth to live a life that is dishonoring towards God. And you can imagine that this point in time in the book of Isaiah, every single person in the kingdom, they have their eyes in one spot, don't they? They have their eyes on Ahaz and the possibility of the worst political politician to ever enter office entering in. They're worried, they're unsettled, they're uncertain of what's going to take place. And their eyes are on the earthly throne. But when this vision comes to Isaiah, his eyes aren't there, are they? His eyes are on the heavenly throne. And that's such a great principle for us even this morning. To have our eyes on the heavenly throne and not the earthly thrones of this world. Because we know that the earthly thrones of this world, they always have corruption. They always have mankind who is 
prone to failure. And yet the heavenly throne, where the God who is holy sits, is never ever at fault. It's always righteous, it's always perfect, and it's always in full power. And that's why when Isaiah sees this vision and his eyes are on the throne of heaven, it's important. And we've got to take note. Because we have to take note of who he's looking at, don't we? It says that when he is looking on the throne, that he sees the Lord. That's important. It's incredible. Because in the book of Isaiah, and especially in the Old Testament, the word Lord is written in two ways. And you probably see this when you do your Bible reading. There is... Lord with a capital L and lowercase O-R-D. And there's a lot of times where it's all capitals. And the thing that's interesting in verse 1 is it's actually written with lowercase. And what that word is, is Adonai, or in other words, the word Kyrios, meaning Lord. And when you read your New Testament, you know that the word Kyrios is representative of Christ, isn't it? That's important to make sure that you understand that word because that word kyrios, which means Lord or Sovereign One, is in fact pointing to the person of Jesus Christ. And actually, John, in his gospel, he addresses this vision that Isaiah has. And in chapter 12, as he explains the hardness of men's heart, this is what he says in John 12, 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. And that whole context of John 12 is speaking of the person of Jesus. So what we understand from this is that when Isaiah looks on the throne, when he sees this glimpse of God who is holy, he gets a glimpse of the person of Jesus Christ. It's amazing. And so when he gets this, he sees the sovereign ruler of the universe. And this is how Christ is explained. As he's on the throne... It says that his robe fills the temple. And Christ's presence is there. And there are seraphim, in other words, angels. And these angels who are with Christ, they're burning with love towards the one who is ruling. You get such a picture of the power and the authority of Jesus, don't you? One thing about Old Testament times is the bigger the train of your robe, the more authority you have. And then the seraphim, they're before him. And it gives us a description. It says that they have... Two wings that cover their face, two that cover their feet, and two that they fly with. And what we understand is that God is an intelligent God, and He's created them to exist in their environment. Because God, who is holy and dwells in unapproachable light, you know, they're not even worthy to be in His presence. That's why two of the wings cover their face so they don't look on God. Two of the wings cover the feet as a sign of modesty in the presence of God. And the two wings that they used to fly are the ones that they serve His majesty. God has created even the angels to exist in that environment. Now, here's something that we need to think about, though. God is the one who dwells in unapproachable light. Angels who are without sin can't even look upon Him. And yet, this is where Isaiah is. He's in a vision of the presence of God. And this is for the purpose of teaching us something about Him. Because the angel's response to the holiness of God is this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. When something is repeated like this in Hebrew language, it's to put strong emphasis on that reality. When it says holy, 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 it's pointing out 
that there is no one like God. That He is so far above us because He's the one who's created us. Not only that, that the prime way that we understand that He is above us is because of His holiness and that we're not holy. What this vision does is it sets God as who He is. But another thing that's interesting about this vision is sometimes when we read about God and Him appearing and Him speaking, we see that smoke begins to enter the room. And it automatically points me back to the book of Exodus. Because when God shows up in His presence, there is a reverence and a fear of Him. And there's a reverent fear, and a lot of times it does accompany smoke. You think of Exodus 3 when he speaks to Moses with the burning bush. And he goes and he commands Moses to lead the Israelites out of captivity, out of slavery. And he's speaking with fire. But then you look later on in the book of Exodus, in Exodus 19. And in Exodus 19, this is before they enter covenant with the law in Exodus 20. And they're approaching the mountain. And as they're approaching the mountain, there's one command that they cannot touch the mountain. Or in other words, they cannot touch the holiness of God. And it's almost like that scene involves like that police cross, police crossing tape. You can only get so close. And the people in anticipation of hearing God speak to them, they inch closer and closer to the point where they get right to the foot of the mountain. But we all know how it worked. God spoke. And when God spoke, there was smoke and there was thunder. Flashes of lightning, rocks were crashing. And out of fear of who God was in His holiness, the people fled, didn't they? They turned and they ran. It almost makes me think of an example about the person of Jesus when He calms the raging sea in Mark chapter 4. And after He calms that sea... And his disciples perceive just how powerful he is. Depart from me, I'm a sinful man. You see, every time God appears in his power in this way, there is a sense in which there is a reverent fear of God and who he is. And so when Isaiah is in the presence of Almighty God, he gets this. He sees the holiness of God. He sees that God is, in fact, revealing himself And when the smoke fills the room and it testifies of his holiness, Isaiah, at this point, gets a glimpse of who God is, doesn't he? He sees with his own eyes that God is, in fact, a holy God. He is presented with the reality of who God is in his fullness. That everything about his character screams that he is, in fact, holy, or in other words, separate, righteous, pure, right in absolutely everything. But then on the flip side of the contrast of God being holy, Isaiah also understands another thing. So on one hand, he understands God is holy, and he sees God for who he really is. But then on the other hand, he understands that I am not holy, and I understand who I really am. Which leads us to verse... 4 and 5, and we should read them again. And the foundation of the threshold shook the place of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, 
the Lord of hosts. When Isaiah gets a glimpse of who God is, we get the glimpse of man. He responds correctly. He responds almost identical to Exodus 3 when Moses was fearful when God appeared to him. He responds in the same way in Exodus 19 when the Israelites fled when God spoke. He responds in the same way as the disciples depart from me a sinful man when they're on the boat on the Sea of Galilee. He responds by knowing and understanding that he is completely undone in the presence of God. He says, I'm lost. Or in other words, I don't understand why I'm here. I don't even belong in this place. Like if there was a thousand different places I could go right now, that's where I should be. Because when he's confronted with the holiness of God, he understands himself, right? That God dwells in unapproachable light. And in his own unworthiness, he should be consumed before God. Our God is a consuming fire. And Isaiah knows that his sin before God should cause him to be ousted from the presence of God. He knows that his shortcomings, that his failures expel him from the right and the privilege to be in the presence of God. He's aware of this and it weighs heavy on him. He says that he's lost and he doesn't belong in the presence of God. And yet, though this is true, we get an amazing picture, not just of Isaiah, but of mankind in general, don't we? Because God's holiness, God's character, God's attributes, all of those things about him, they serve for us as a mirror so that we can know who he is correctly, but also who we are correctly. And what the Bible says about who God is is so simple for us. And I want to give us a contrast. Because we know that God is pure and that God is holy. But 1 Timothy 1.16, that God dwells in unapproachable light. You cannot ascend his mountain because of his holiness. 1 John 1.5 tells us that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. Not a single spot or blemish. In God, period. Absolutely pure. Absolutely perfect. We're also told in Hebrews 6.18 that it is impossible for God to lie. In other words, not only is He completely perfect in His being and in His character, but in everything He does. And that's why it says in Genesis 18.25, Shall not the just judge of the earth do what is right? You see, the case that's built in Scripture is that God is absolutely pure. But then the case that the Bible builds for us in who we are in contrast to God is quite a different story, isn't it? The Bible says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, none of us have ever hit the mark of what it means to be righteous or perfect or holy. Every single one of us has fallen in sin. Ephesians 2.1 takes it a step farther. Ephesians 2.1 says that mankind is dead in trespasses and sins. That word dead literally means unresponsive, spiritually cut off from God. Romans 8.7. Romans 8.7 says the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. So it's not just that we're, we fall in sin, it's just not that we don't have a relationship with Him, but that in our sinful condition and in our sinful nature... We actually have a hostile heart before God. 
Romans 6.23 ends really with a nail on the coffin, doesn't it? Since God dwells in unapproachable light and He's absolutely perfect, we're told that in Romans 6, 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. That's quite a comparison. Because when you look at that contrast, when you look at what the Bible says about who God is and who we are, then it stands to reason that God is holy and we are not. And that puts us in the greatest dilemma that we have as a human. And I want to be clear here. Look, it's not just an Isaiah problem. This is the problem that has plagued the entirety of the human race. Sin and unholiness and evil is the very thing that has been destroying mankind from, from the garden till the present age and until the end when Christ returns. It is literally destroyed from that point until the return of Christ. And maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, well, I know what Isaiah's problem was. He had the sin of unclean lips and maybe you think, I don't have that problem. But let me tell you, there is so many different avenues, so many different ways, so many different actions that we fall in that we couldn't even count. And though we might not struggle with one sin on one side, what's to say there isn't another sin on the other side that we wrestle with and struggle with? Because it might not be the sin of unclean lips for somebody, but it could be the sin of unclean eyes. Maybe it's not even unclean eyes. Maybe it's a sin of bitterness. Anger, greed, lying, slander, cutting people's character down. So many different things. And sometimes it almost becomes a little bit overwhelming because you know that maybe you're doing well in one area, but what about the time when you get tempted and you struggle and you fall in another? And this is what we need to realize. That one sin alone is enough to cause us to be ousted from the presence of the Holy God. All it takes is one. And, for, and I know myself, I know the worst version of myself. I know myself at my worst. And it's not just one sin, is it? We have a whole host of sins that we battle with and we struggle with. And outside of Christ, the whole host of sins that loom over our head and condemn us. But what ends up happening as this truth causes people to shift their view of God. Because they think that, yes, God is holy. Yes, sin demands us to be ousted from His presence. But then they'll begin to question the, the validity of who God is. They'll begin to question the goodness of God. They'll say, well, you know, it doesn't really sound like God is a, a very loving God. It sounds like He sets the bar so high that no one can ever reach it. It's almost like He's against us. It's almost like He's trying to get us to fail. It's almost as if he doesn't really care about the problems that we have. And then it goes from that to something farther where they'll say, yes, God might be a holy God in who he is, but it would be wrong and actually unloving for God if he was to punish sin, if he was actually to deal with sin. And this creates a problem for people, and I'll tell you why. It creates a problem for people because in our world today, we don't know who God is and we don't know who we are. That's why. Because yes, God is loving. God is forgiving. God is merciful. God extends grace to anyone who would come. He really does. But here's the other thing. 
On the other hand, in the goodness of God, He has promised for His people an eternity of absolute peace, absolute perfection in the eternal state. Oh, that we would actually spend our eternity in the presence of God, under His favor and under His goodness. So then if God doesn't deal with sin, in His holiness, if He lets sin slide by the wayside, then He's actually not very loving towards His people, is He? Because He's not following through on an eternity in His presence in perfection. If He lets sin into eternity, He's not holy. He compromises who He is. He compromises His very being, and then He ceases to be God. And the Bible is so clear on this that we are awaiting that day where the world is redeemed from all unholiness. Romans chapter 8 speaks about this in verse 19 where it says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. In other words, the people of God who have been redeemed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from the bondage of corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of of our bodies. You see that? If God does not deal with sin in His holiness, He's not faithful to His people, is He? And this is something that sometimes does create a bit of a problem with us because, like I said, we sometimes don't see the evilness of sin. And Paul Washer, in a sermon that he preached many years ago, and, and he was quite bold when he said this, he said, for the person who is outside of Christ, their sin is so vile that the last thing they will hear when they walk into the eternal lake of fire is creation applauding God ridding the world of their sin. And those words, they're intense. Like, they're gut-wrenching. They really are. But at the same time, when we understand those words, and we understand that it's because... God is a just God. He's, he's not doing it out of anger or hate. He's doing it because of who He is. If you think about it, if nobody had ever sinned, God would never execute justice towards sin. We would all live in perfect community and harmony with Him. But it's just not the reality. And the moment He slides on this, He ceases to be God. And if He ceases to be God, then we cease to to exist because it's in Him that we live and move and have our being. God must stay true to His holiness. But here I want to touch on two things because you can even say that to somebody and they still take issue with it. You can even go that far and they'll still have a problem. I remember when uh, I was working at the swimming pool, I worked there for like 10 years and taught lessons and I worked with tons of university students and there was this objection that was brought up to me all the time. And this was the objection. You know, if God was really a loving God, He would just remove the penalty of sin for everybody and forgive everyone. Or the other thing they would say is this. If God was really a loving God, He might even go a bit farther to just 
remove sin from the world completely. And I actually asked this one girl who said this to me, I said, do you you really understand the statement you're saying? Because if God was to remove the world of sin completely, that would mean that he would have to remove every single person who has ever walked the face of this earth except for Jesus Christ. That's how vile sin is. We need to let that sink in about ourselves. But then the second one is people fail to see God in His holiness. They fail to see that He is, in fact, the greatest authority that there is. And that when you sin against the greatest authority, it brings about the greatest punishment. Because God is an eternal God. And it says in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11 that everything exists because He wills it. And because of that, we understand that since God has created everything to exist for His glory, when we don't glorify Him, since He is eternal, the punishment on the other side is eternal. We have to know who God is. Since God is holy, He does have a distaste for sin. He, does, he has an acceptance of sin. And it puts us in a tough spot, doesn't it? It really does put us in the bind because we know in and of ourselves who we are. We know that we have struggled with sin. We know that our sin is something that consumes us. It's something that condemns us. It's something that seeks to destroy us. And though that is true, and though we need to feel the weight of that this morning, Isaiah 6 doesn't leave us there. It doesn't leave you with an overwhelming sense of your sin and then not give you any hope. Because as this passage moves along, after you get a sense of who you are, you get immediate, immediate hope in the passage. Let's read verse 6 and 7 on a a guilt to be cleansed. Then when the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from an altar, and he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned for. See, in this next section, we come across something absolutely amazing. Because, like I said, you can hear everything that the Bible says about man. You can feel the weight of it. And yet, sometimes you don't really know where to go after that. Well, Isaiah 6 tells us where to go. Because though the verdict of us is true, that we're guilty. Though the verdict is true that we are separated and ousted from the presence of God, Isaiah's vision changes the game. It brings in hope where there's nothing but death. It brings in life where there's nothing but judgment. It brings hope to the situation of our guilt before God. Because Isaiah in this section, he's cleansed from his sin of unclean lips, isn't he? God actually takes the initiative to do something about his problem. And because God does this, there's also an application for us. Because here's the picture. Not just Isaiah, but every single one of us, we need purification from our sin, don't we? There's nobody excluded from that scenario. And it happens. God purifies Isaiah. He purifies those who are his, but there's also an application for anyone this morning who's outside of Christ. Not only does he purify his own people, but he purifies anyone 
who would come. That's why the passage says, anyone who would hear and turn and be healed. And there's an application for both, and I want to address the believer first, and then I also want to address the unbeliever. In this picture of purification for the believer, Isaiah is lamenting over his sin, isn't he? He really is. He is genuinely broken before God. And in this, his sin is dealt with. He is purified because one of the seraphim, this is the picture, takes the coal, places it on his lips, and what that represents is that hot coal is singeing off the wound that his sin of unclean lips has created. He's singeing off the wound so that it would not continue to destroy him. And this is not God putting Isaiah through torture. This is not some form of repayment for your sins in this respect. This is what he's doing. He's taking the initiative to heal him and to purify him. That's what fire represents. And here's something else that's important. For God to do this towards Isaiah, he's not looking for Isaiah to measure up, is he? He's not looking for Isaiah to have enough good works, to have enough things going for him, to have the mercy of God in this situation. God, out of love for Isaiah, cleanses him and takes his guilt away. And then he's able to remain in the presence of God without being consumed. And this shows us, in a very real way, how God deals with us and our sin, doesn't it? Because when God deals with us, it's for the purpose of conforming us to the image of His Son. And when He purifies us from our sin, it's so that we would walk closer with Him. That's what it says in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, that it is God's will that we would be sanctified. And so when there are sins in your life, when there are things that leave you undone before God because you know what you've done and you feel inadequate, and you're sensitive to those evil acts, you're sensitive to those things that would put a wedge between you and your fellowship with God. When you repent, when you take that before Him, you receive the blessing of being cleansed by God. That's what it says in 1 John, doesn't it? That if we confess our sins, that He is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. That He is faithful to take all of those sins and to forgive us and to cause us to get back up on our feet again and to keep moving on in the purpose of serving Him. And that's really what it is. That the grace of God that sanctifies us, knowing that when we mess up and we turn to Him, causes us in turn to live a life of, to glorify Him. He's the one that does the work and in response, that relationship is restored and we move on with Christ, don't we? But here's the problem. We can be tempted at so many times to think something. And to think something that's detrimental to our faith. What we can often think is that God is just merely tolerating me in my sin. Maybe God is just, just putting up with me. Maybe He's not even interested at this point. Maybe I've just done so much where, you know what, maybe He's going to throw in the towel with me. Maybe, maybe He'll think I'm a lost cause. Maybe He'll think that, you know what, I've just simply had enough. Because you yourself know that though we strive to live a life pleasing to God, there are times where we do incredibly well, and there are times that we don't. And there are times that even in what we intend to do right, there's still 
evil intent, there's still evil motive, there's still so many things where though it might be a good work towards God, it's not perfect, is it? And there's an example that was used by Kevin Young, a pastor from the States, to really encourage the heart and sanctification. Because he said it's, it's like this. We are God's children, and God deals with us for who we are. In the same way, if you had a two- or a three-year-old child come up to you, it was your child, and they said, Daddy, or they said, Mommy, I drew this incredibly awesome picture of you. And they gave it to you, and you look at the picture, and you're thinking, man, this is a, you're not going to save them. This is a complete disaster. My head isn't that big. I don't have seven fingers and three toes. I don't have a torso that's twice as long as my legs. What you do is you open up the drawer of your cupboard, you grab a magnet, and you put it up on the fridge. And you say, thank you. That's how God is with us. He's not just waiting to crack down on us for the slightest imperfection. He is standing there ready and willing to forgive us of our sins and to cause us to get back on our feet and walk with Him. He's not merely tolerating us. And sometimes when we think about the holiness of God, we need to think of it in this way. This is a testimony of the graciousness and the love of God that is holy as He is by the work of Christ on our behalf. We're not ousted out of His presence, but rather He's delighted that His people are in His presence. You see how the paradigm shifts when God purifies us from our sin and He continually sanctifies us? And we are not perfect on this side of time. And we never will be. But God is a perfect God and He's a loving God. And He deals with us as we are His children. That should set our heart to ease this morning. Because I know that there are times when the weight of my sin comes in and it just causes me to wallow. It causes me to almost be spiritually paralyzed, so to speak. And yet when I think of the goodness of God that He deals with us, not according to our sins, but according to what Christ has done for us. And not only that, in Psalm 103, that He has cast our sin as far as the east is from the west. That motivates me to continue to live for Christ. That is a motivation for sanctification, isn't it? Because if you didn't have that truth, if you didn't have that reality about you in Christ, there would never ever be anything within you that would press in to following Him. God is a gracious God. And in His holiness, He has made it so that we are a delight in His presence. Not because of anything in us, but because of how good He is and what He's done for us in Jesus Christ. That is the hope and the encouragement of the Christian this morning in the presence of God. Do you believe that? Do you hold on to that? Do you cling to that? You need to. But I also want to speak to you if you are an unbeliever. Because, like I said, the, the way that it stacks up with the holiness of God and with the unholiness of man is that we don't, you don't have that same hope that God is going to deal with you in that way in and of yourself. But there is hope. Because that coal, that coal represents a very important truth about the gospel. Because we can know all of the knowledge about what Jesus Christ has done for us. 
We can know that he has gone to the cross, that he has completed the work, that he has satisfied the wrath of God, that he has been buried, that he's risen again on the third day, and that the offer stands that anyone who will turn to Christ today will live is true. But look, unless you receive Christ by faith and his work is applied to you, it doesn't do anything for you. And that's the picture of the coal. The coal was applied to make purification for sin. The way that Christ's work is applied is by faith in Christ. Have you trusted upon Christ? Have you relied upon Him? Have you taken that message of the gospel and believed upon Him? To put it in this way, if you are an unbeliever, the only hope you have is to, by faith, believe in Jesus Christ. Because, honestly, your works... All of your efforts, all of the things that you think that you might be able to do, it's never, ever going to measure up before the God who is holy. You can put all of your efforts into earning God's forgiveness. You can put all of your efforts into making it look like you should stand right before Him, that you're an upright moral person. You can do absolutely everything by your power. But look, you still have a sin nature before God. You are still dead in your trespasses and sins. You are still without Christ and without hope in the world. There is not one thing that you could ever do to ascend the hill of God, to approach the one who is an unapproachable light and in of your own merits. The only person that could ever do that was Jesus Christ. He was the only person that ever lived a perfect and holy and righteous life. And here's the reality. It's by His merit that you can enter the presence of God. That command to be holy as, as He is holy, we strive for that as Christians, but on this side of time, it is an impossibility. And for the religious person who's lost to try to take that command and try to achieve it, it is an absolute futile effort. Especially when you compare it to this. That Christ has done everything. So when you know that Christ has done everything and you think, I'm going to try to work that up in and of myself, it's almost a slight on Christ and who He is. That in and of itself is an unholy action. Look, everything about it, everything about yourself will never ever work. You need Christ. He is the only way to be in the presence of the God who is holy. Now, with that being said, I want to take us through our last section, which is a grace to live. Every single passage leads to an application, and here it is. Verse 8 says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who am I? Sorry, who shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said this, Here I am, send me. On this point of application, when you get a glimpse of God, and a glimpse of yourself like Isaiah, it changes your life, doesn't it? And it changes your walk. And it changes how you think about things. And it changes how you respond to situations. It changes the totality of who you are. And this is really the greatest test to know if you have encountered the God who is holy as he is in the Bible. The first one is honestly this obedience to God's commands. 
When God asked you, will I send? And he immediately said, here I am, send me. There is an obedience for the people of God who love him. There's an obedience that is produced by faith. Do you obey God's commands? The next thing is that there's also a desire for service. And he gave Isaiah a task, and it wasn't the greatest task in the world. The task that he gave him was to basically go and tell all the people that they were going to continue to reject God's message, that they were continuing to harden their hearts. But at the same time, he was faithful to what God had called him to do. And so many people falsely believe that they have an encounter with the Holy God. And yet those two things are absent in their life. There's no sense in which they want to follow God. And also the idea of being obedient to what he's commissioned us to do as believers, which is primarily to glorify him, but then also to be servants of his kingdom. You have to wonder, have, has that person really encountered God? And this is even a test for ourselves. Have we really encountered God as he is? And the way to know that is that you are living different now than you did before you knew who God was. For example, and you've probably heard this illustration before, it's one that's been used by quite a few people, but imagine I showed up this morning and I was super late. It could have been believable with the snowstorm, but I stayed in Fredericton. But let's just say, for example, I showed up, I look exactly like I do right now. I'm 20 minutes late to come and preach, and I just say, I'm so sorry, guys. I, I had a flat tire on the way here, and as I walked around the driver's side of my car to get my tire changed, there was a big semi-truck on the highway, and it just clipped me. And it threw me 150 feet up the highway. But I was some, some fortunate that by the time I was done seeing stars, I was able to get back in my car and drive here, and here I am. Well, you're going to think one of two things. Either I'm a complete lunatic who lost my mind, and I belong in a padded room, and I should be right here. Or you're going to think that I'm just a liar, and you know, just, you're not going to trust anything I have to say at that point. But here's the reality. When you encounter a Mack truck, you're not walking away from that. When you encounter a Mack truck, at best, you're on a stretcher in the hospital, probably paraplegic. There's not a single chance I'm going to walk in here just like I would any other day. In the same way when we encounter God, the one who is the all-consuming fire, the one who fills all of heaven and earth, the one who is completely sovereign over absolutely everything, when you encounter him, and he is far greater than a Mack truck, that produces a change in your life, doesn't it? And what that change produces, like I said, is first of all, obedience to his word, but secondly, he's also given us a message to proclaim, hasn't he? Isaiah's message was a message of judgment, but for us, it's a message of the gospel. The message of the gospel. We are commanded by Christ to go and to make disciples of all nations. We are commanded to go and to do his work for his kingdom. And for us as a Christian today, that's your mandate. It's to share and it's to serve. And I just want to put it this way. If that has happened, if you've really encountered God, this isn't something that becomes a problem for us. Because honestly, what you find is when people don't take the commission of God seriously with the kingdom. When they don't really regard God's words 
to go and to be obedient to his command to preach the gospel to all nations. In whatever way that you're gifted to do it, it shows that we don't regard God for who he is because we're not obedient to what he's commanded us to do. When you have seen your own sinfulness, when you have seen your own unworthiness and what God has done for you, that is something that motivates you to share. It's something that motivates you to go and to take that good news and to spread it to all who will hear. And honestly, that doesn't mean that everybody's going out on the streets with tracks. doesn't mean that everybody is preaching. But guess what? We have our homes. We have conversations that we have with family members. There's so many different things at work where we can have a conversation. Just wherever we are, God has given us an ability to be obedient to that commission. Like I said, Isaiah, his day, a message of judgment. For us as Christians in our day, the message of hope in the gospel. And honestly, to know that we've encountered God is to know that there is a desire for us to serve his kingdom in this way. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, if you have no wish to see others saved, he said, you are not yourself. Be sure of that. So in application, if you are a Christian, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to do and to be what God has called you to do and be. God has called you to be holy as he is holy. Press into him. Know that it's his will for you to be sanctified and to walk closely with Christ. But then also on the other hand, be obedient to him and his commands. Because honestly, a life that is served and a life that is lived for Christ is of far more value than a life that's just squandered away in the things of this world, locked up in things that are absolutely meaningless when we have the pleasure of serving the God who is holy. But then also, I want to end on this note. If you were outside of Christ, you might have heard all of this before. This is probably not the first time you've actually even heard the gospel explained. And yet at the same time, you're wavering and you're staying between what you know is right about who God is, what you need to do to be made right before God, so that you can remain in His presence without being consumed. And the only reason that that will not change for you is because you are unwilling to lay down your life. You are unwilling to turn to Christ. You are unwilling to believe upon Him. Because the reality is this morning is that Christ has completed the work and God stands ready to save you. He is not holding anything back in and of Himself. He has given it all in giving Christ. That's what it says in Romans 8.32. That for he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? In him giving Christ, he gave everything. And he has made the way for you to be right with God. He has made the way so that you will not have to spend eternity under the judgment of God. It doesn't have to be that way. So this morning... Would you turn from your sin? Would you realize that that's the very thing that's destroying your soul and forsake it? And would you trust upon Christ so that his work would be applied to you in the same way the coal was applied to Isaiah? That is the way that you will stand before the holy God 
and be with him forever and receive full pardon for your sin and have peace with God. Would you come to him today? Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much that though God is holy, that you are holy, you have made a way for us to be in your presence without being consumed. That there is absolute hope in the gospel. That every single person who is in this room can be made right with you. Because God, apart from you doing that work, we are left in our sins and we are left in a completely vulnerable place, which is before your judgment without any hope. And Lord, I pray for your people this morning that they would be encouraged that you deal with us not according to our sins, but you deal with us according to your mercy. And that though we don't measure up, even at times as a Christian, you are there and you forgive us of our sins. You put us back up on our feet and you give us the grace to fulfill that command to be holy as you are holy. And though we never will reach that on this side of time, we strive for it. Lord, I just am so mindful of that verse that I mentioned earlier. Not unto us, not unto us, but to your name be glory and honor forever. Would that be the prayer of our life as your people, God? I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.